the whole like story of the pandemic shifted, and it was not about keeping uh, the healthcare system in check, and it wasn't about like keeping people from dying. It was, after a while, it became about people shouldn't get COVID, and these Swedish yeah. scientists were like, "This is impossible." Hey guys, Eric Olson here, and welcome back to the Science Centric Podcast. Before we dive into this episode's content, I just wanted to mention a couple of things. One is be sure to rate this podcast and write us a review on whichever platform you happen to be listening on. We're on all the major ones, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. We'd really love to have a review from you and it will help our podcast get noticed and grow. The other thing is if you want to support us directly, you can do so through Patreon. We have a number of nice benefits over there, including early access to new episodes, ad-free episodes, and a monthly Q&A with me where you can suggest topics or guests for new episodes and just help us shape the direction of the show in general. To find out more about Patreon, check out the show notes or head over to sciencecentric.com support. Our guest for this episode is Johan Anderberg. Johan Anderberg is a Swedish journalist and writer who has been a regular contributor to a number of Swedish and international media outlets, including Focus, Sidvenskin, I'm probably not saying yeah. that right, <laughs> and the Wall Street Journal. Uh, his new book is The Herd, How Sweden Chose Its Own Path Through the Worst Pandemic in 100 Years. So, Johan, welcome to the podcast. So great to have you here. Um, Thank thanks you. for joining. Thanks. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so your book is called The Herd. Um, and having read it, I get the impression that when you're talking about the herd, you're not just talking about herd immunity. You're talking about the herd as in sort of herd mentality and people, you know, going along with, um, what other people think uh is that yes. the case and my other question about that is you know what what was the origin of this book uh how did it come about and uh when did you start writing it i started writing it um just like a few weeks after the, the pandemic hit uh, really hard in, in the us and in europe and it became pretty clear that sweden chose its own path and at that time this concept of herd immunity was really um, prevalent and you were totally right about uh, the double meaning of the word because uh, that, that's what I that was one thing that was very clear early on that um, from the Swedish vantage point it very much looked like the rest of the world was uh, like thinking uh, thinking the same that dissenting voices weren't, weren't really heard. Uh, I mean, the, you, could, you could definitely see dissent or hear dissenting voices if you, if you look really hard. But um, to my understanding and to most Swedes, like most Swedes were very surprised that so many prestigious uh, media outlets uh, were on lo the lockdown train. So. Mm -hmm. um... And it's kind of, Swedes are very much into like, uh, uh, you know, professional journalism or mainstream media, as pe some people call it. It's like, uh, as a journalist, we in Sweden we've been raised with uh, the you know the New York Times and Washington Post and BBC being the gold standard of journalism. So, 
I thought it was kind of terrifying to see them not questioning the assumptions here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think that, yeah, there was sort of a consensus in the U.S. media about, you know, following what guidelines the experts put forth and such. And I think people were, I think journalists here were probably a little bit, you know, scared about putting out information that was wrong or contradicted the experts and then, you know, being responsible for deaths as well. You know, it's a, it's a bit of a precautionary yeah. thing. Um, so maybe, um, I think a lot of people early on in, in the COVID pandemic followed, um, what followed the story with Sweden. I mean, I know I did, I was like, wow, this is, this is a little bit unusual what, what they're choosing to do the Swedish government in particular, but maybe you could just tell the audience, um, what Sweden did that, that was different just to kind of set up kind of how this, how this unfolded, but what, what, what were the main things that were different compared to say, let's just say the United States, because I think, um, my audience would be most interested in that. I think there are a number of things that are very different. Like, first of all, we didn't really have any lockdown or we didn't have a lockdown at all. Uh, after about a year or maybe eight or nine months, there were some, uh, I, I would say pretty harsh restrictions, but um, compared to other countries, they weren't that strict. And there weren't very many laws either. It was mostly like recommendations and I, no one pretty much wore face masks uh, at any point <laughs> during the pandemic. <laughs> I think the numbers was like some, I guess like 10% of people were uh, during the subway rush hours um, when it was actually recommended for a few months. So, uh, and I mean, and there are lots of small things as well. Like we haven't given the vaccine to kids under the age of 12 and probably mm -hmm. won't do either. Um, so basically, I think the main difference is that the Swedish uh, authorities didn't really see the risks uh, associated with having COVID as that high compared to the US and weighed other risks when it came to lockdowns and, uh, and also the vaccine, I guess. And so it was pretty much a totally different approach yeah. from early on. And even now, because all the laws are off the books and like the pandemic is officially over since half a year. Yeah. Um, so let's see, how do I want to phrase this? Um, the so this different, so I, I'm thinking back to like early on in the pandemic, like, you know, March of 2020. And I, you know, remember thinking like at that time, like I was really advocating that school shut down because we didn't know what was happening. We didn't know how serious this was. Um, and I remember when the schools actually finally shut down, that was like, I was like, okay, this now people are taking this very seriously because it's like once schools shut down, that has this, all these like ripple on domino effect through the society. Like parents can't work. Obviously that's a huge thing. Like, you know, we have to find alternative daycare and that sort of stuff. So what I'm curious about is that 
and and I and you detail this in the book, although you know you're getting more into the science, but like this this group of Swedish epidemiologists. I mean, how did they know? How did they know what they were doing was right, or did they just like was it just kind of faith? Or you know, I mean, it, it takes a lot of 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 strength of will to kind of oppose everything that's going on around you. So. Is it just come down to personality or, you know, what, what, what was the difference there? I think uh, personality is uh, an important part of it. Um, mm -hmm. when, uh, when Anders Tegnell, who was the man in charge, when, when he was hired to uh, the Public Health Authority the first time, his uh, mentor really liked that he was so uh, unfaced and so um, that he didn't really care about <laughs> what people thought of him, and that he was he was not like a political human being at all. And I, I guess a lot of other scientists uh, who would have uh, just uh, felt the need to do what everyone else did. And in Denmark and Norway, the scientists there kind of wanted to do the Swedish uh, path, but they were uh, overrun by their politicians and they didn't really make a big fuss about it in the media or anything. So I, I guess the personality is uh, one part. But they also, like judging from the, all these emails I've, uh, I've, mm -hmm. I've read uh, between these scientists, it's pretty obvious that they, they figured out early on that this wasn't as deadly as the rest of the world thought. Um, yeah. Once they had this, this um, path, there was... Um, a really influential report from Imperial College in London. And when you take those numbers and uh, recalibrate them for uh, for Sweden, we were supposed to have somewhere around 100,000 deaths uh, in three months in 2020. And the actual result came to 6,000. So it was pretty obvious that all these projections were overblown. And yeah. yeah. But then, you know, the the whole like story of the pandemic shifted and it was about, it was not about uh, uh, keeping uh, the healthcare system in check and it wasn't about like keeping people from dying. It was, after a while it became about people shouldn't get COVID. And these Swedish yeah. scientists were like, this is impossible. There's no way we can stop <laughs> So, So their thinking was that if we, if you let enough people get infected, that they would, that it would create this kind of herd immunity effect um, that, you know, eventually, like, I think in the book, you said at some point, somebody calculated like 40% of the population would have some kind of exposure and that that would, that would kind of be the end of the pandemic, right? Yeah, and they were kind of wrong about that. So it, it took a lot more people to, uh, <laughs> But, but what did happen was that uh, Stockholm was never really Stockholm was really hard hit the first time around, and then it, we then the numbers were much lower the second time around. So what happened was that the pandemic shifted to other parts of Sweden. So there was definitely uh, an immunity that protected uh, the Swedish population after a while. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. uh, but they were like a little bit too optimistic about when this herd immunity would. Um, uh, would enter, so to speak. And, and then the vaccine came and that sort of changed the whole calculation. Yeah. 
And so that's that's sort of that sort of is the that's sort of the end of your book, right? Or the main yeah. narrative of your book is okay. The vaccine comes along, and that's sort of the end of this experiment. Um, yeah. But did they? Do we? Do we know that? Like you know, in from from that. I mean, it was it wasn't was it a whole year that we basically went without a vaccine? I mean, I think it was the better part of a year. Did yeah, I mean. The, the vaccine came on November 9th, I think, in the UK. Uh, that was like the first shot. But we didn't like get any doses until like to can, like for real until the spring of 2021. So yeah, like, that, yeah. that's the time when like pretty much everyone started getting it. Yeah. So, um, so is there, I mean, is it, is it, is there evidence that this, this strategy of just letting the, the virus letting COVID sort of course through the population that that was actually, or not, I shouldn't say course through the population, but that, that there was sort of this trying to have a more measured release of the virus through the population, that that was actually effective. Yeah. I, I mean, if you, if you look at the, the excess deaths on the deaths, uh, through by, by COVID, Sweden comes out, uh, really well, uh, almost like it, or actually in all ways of counting, Sweden is among the lowest in Europe and in the world. There was actually a WHO report. It came out today, I think, and Sweden, and that um, corroborates that view as well, that mm -hmm. um, other countries, countries that locked down were much harder hit. And Germany wasn't that hard hit in the beginning. And in Sweden, all these uh, newspapers who were kind of pro-lockdown, um, they wrote all these stories about Germany doing the right thing. And now Germany is worse off than Sweden. Currently. And, and like they've been masking kids and they've shut schools. Yeah. On and off. So, I mean, I, I think the story here isn't as so much Sweden as the rest of the world, just having this weird policy experiment that didn't succeed in, in any yeah. way. To, yeah. I just wanted to take a moment to thank the sponsor of this episode, FlowSpark Media. So FlowSpark Media is the video-based media company that I founded in 2018. In addition to producing freely available series like the one you're listening to, we also help science and technology-focused organizations to develop, create, and manage their video projects. Our clients range from major scientific publishers to space telecom companies to STEM-focused educational programs. Head over to flowspark.com creative to find out how we can help you with your next project. Now back to the show. It seems like, you know, you have all these different countries and in the U.S., like, you know, we're such a big country, we have all these states that did different interventions to yeah. try to stop or mitigate the effects of the virus but it seems like in the end it, none of it really worked that well and you know mm. and then so then what do you look at i guess you look at you know how the differential and how people how the economies were affected and was the caught the huge cost of these lockdowns and wearing masks and shutting things down is that was that d d was that you know justified did it actually have an have an impact um, so, I mean, do we know, do we know that in terms of Sweden? I mean, did Sweden come out of that, come out of 
the pandemic in a better financial shape than other countries like yeah other nordic countries in particular because that's probably a good way to compare is to look at you know denmark and norway and i think all the scandinavian countries came out really well um uh judging by economic standards but i don't know if it's such a good way of measuring um the toll of the pandemic since just to translate this to, like, um, um, to the U.S. Like, say you have like a, a state that is very export-oriented, then what you do in that state doesn't really matter for the economy. It's like who, who buys our stuff, and Sweden has also a very export-oriented economy. So, mm-hmm. like, if people don't buy like our cars or our Spotify services or whatever, then the economy will will do bad and and. I guess mm. tourist countries would have been really hard hit as well. So yeah, and like I guess Norway was like did have uh, had a pretty good economy throughout, but I mean their um, economy is like based on oil, so right. their economy is <laughs> a proxy of the oil price. So um, I, I, I think the economy angle has always been a little bit stupid in my years, actually. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So what do you think's like a better measure of, you know, cost-benefit? I mean, I, mean I, I would like to read a study of, like, missed school days. And mm-hmm. How, and, I mean, how public health in general, like, teen depression. Um, I guess the true cost will be seen, like, yeah, many years from now. Yeah. Especially when it came to that really hard lockdown countries and states. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, yeah, I just read something this morning that someone looked at edu- um, edu- educational attainment in math in particular, that kids who were in remote learning did like 30% worse than kids that were in, that were still doing in-person school. They all did worse because, you know, they weren't getting the same education that they would have gotten had there not been a pandemic, yeah. but the remote learning was really bad in that sense. And I'm guessing the and other, yeah. Yeah, and it's especially bad for disadvantaged kids. Yes, right, um, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a writer and I, I can stay at home with my kids and teach <laughs> them if we're like, uh, <laughs> but if your parents work at McDonald's and, uh, or like yes. at Amazon, I mean, it's, and, and that that's actually really interesting because in Sweden, uh, there was a left-wing government throughout this uh, pandemic, and it was actually seen as uh, kind of a left-wing thing to uh, to not lock down because it would uh. have been so much worse for. Uh, but in the US, <laughs> it was like the opposite, and and to me that doesn't make sense at all because I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if we had locked down, I would have done like all rich Swedes. I would just go to like the, the mountain cabin and uh, go skiing <laughs> all day and like t- teach my kids English in like in the afternoon. But I mean, if you're poor, you can't do that kind of stuff. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's definitely true. Um, yeah, just d- d- kids kids who had parents who needed to go off to some kind of service job or something like that were really in a lot yeah. of trouble. Um, yeah, I mean, we, we had a, my wife and I, we, we have 
you know, two young kids and we, we were able to do that as well. We were able to, we have jobs that were flexible to, to be able to stay at home. Um, not to say it didn't impact, it wasn't an impact, but you know, um, probably less so than someone, you know, making end meet, making ends meet in a service, um, type job. Um, were, were they happy to go back to school? It's, it's oh yeah. Now. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah it was terrible. Yeah. My, my, well, I have one that's, that's in daycare, not in school, but my, my older son was, was so happy to go be going back and just hated remote school. It was just, you know, liked it at first, but then when you're doing that for, you know, nine months, it was, it's pretty tough. And, uh, yeah. you know, uh, with the younger kid, I think, uh, you know, he was a toddler through it till preschool age now. And I do think it probably did have some impact on his language development. I think he's a little bit behind there. Um, mm. just not being around other kids that, um, cause we pulled him out of daycare, just not being around other kids, because I think, I think there's some peer pressure with language development that when they're around kids that maybe are advancing a little bit faster that they want to catch up. But when you're not around other kids that are kind of closer to your age, then you, you follow. I mean, I, I, I don't have studies to prove that, but that's, that's my thinking about it. Um, yeah, but I think language is very associated with like your peers because I have a very yeah. head, head, thick sweet, uh, Southern Swedish accent, but my kids have like, they speak like they're, uh, uh, they're friends. I mean, ah. they don't care about, about the way I speak. <laughs> That's like not true. <laughs> um, yeah, I think there's some good evidence for that in terms of yeah of of kids being very influenced by their peers. Um, and I, I don't know yeah. specifically about language, but I know about other things. That's true. So I don't know why language would be any different. Um, yeah. So. Your book was like really, um, you really had an intimate view of sort of what was going on during this, uh, you know, early pandemic. And it, it almost reads as like, almost like a thriller kind of, um, you yeah. know, you're, you're, you're like sitting at the meeting with all of these people. How did you get access to all of this information in particular, their emails? I mean, you had all these email exchanges and everything. Is that public record or how did you? Yeah. Public. Oh, okay. Um, um, Sweden has like very liberal freedom of information act. So that, that's one reason that I started writing this book. So, cause I, I knew there was going to be some really juicy stuff, uh, in there. <laughs> and, uh, and it almost, I knew it also would take like a book project to go through it. Cause it was like a, a total, like 10,000 emails or something like that. So. Mm -hmm. Took a couple of months to uh, to go through it all, um, mm -hmm. and yeah, so they were like very open. And the funny thing is that people like if you work at like in the government offices uh, in Sweden and you, you've been in touch with the media, then you then you know you're not supposed to write this kind of stuff in an email. <laughs> so, but, but these people, like, no one has cared about these people, <laughs> right? They're, right. They're, so they had like no idea that, that someone would, have, would one day write a book about them. <laughs> now, did you also interview some of these people? Like uh, what Anders Tegnell? That's the that's yeah. the state epidemiologist for Sweden. And then there's this other there's this whole cast of characters. Um, did you did you get to talk to them in person as well? 
Yeah, like the funny thing was that like a lot of people were like, really open. Uh, probably Anderson now the least, but he did this press conference every day. So if you just stood there and stood in line for like an hour, then you could like ask five or ten questions. So it was kind of funny. Uh, like everyone asked questions about like uh, the pandemic, what what happened that day, like whether or not Denmark would close its borders and blah blah blah. But, but I, I always ask something about something that had happened like in the 70s or 80s. Uh, <laughs> I, I read like all these uh, books and all these like studies and uh, like, do you still believe what you wrote in the, the Lancet article in 1988? And uh, so it's it kind of weird. It felt like I, I, did, I lived in like a parallel universe for yeah. For- what one thing that struck me also is just that it seemed like the Swedish government for at least for that first year of the pandemic just sort of handed the reins over to, to Anders Tegnell. Um, yeah. and that, that was pretty in pretty stark contrast to what was happening in the U S with Trump. And, um, I mean, is that, is that seem typical for the Swedish people that, that they have that much trust in, in scientists? Um, I feel like the U.S. there's there's at least amongst the conservatives uh, in our country they're very skeptical of of scientists and scientific experts. Um, yeah, I, I mean Swedes, I guess, are like pretty trusting of scientists. Like, like when man, normally ninety seven percent of all kids take their all take it like all their shots. Yeah, um, or their parents give them their shots and but when it comes to politicians that, that's like really interesting because we have a habit of not electing very charismatic politicians so most of them are pretty low-key compared to American politicians and especially Stefan Levin who was the Prime Minister at that time this uh, the Labour Party had this um, they were like in a crisis and pretty much no one wanted the spot as the leader of that party so he, he had to be convinced, and even though he was the prime minister for eight years, he never seemed to enjoy it at all. Felt like he to <laughs> so it would have been very out of character of him to uh, take charge. So that's definitely a, p- a little part of the puzzle. Because if it had been like a more uh, like another kind of politician, then uh, maybe a more more of a populist politician probably would have uh, uh, taken the reins a little bit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it would have been for him from, like, for constitutional reasons because there are some really strong uh, uh, sentences in the constitution that bars many of those things that the rest of the world did. And I'm kind of surprised mm-hmm. that the US constitution allowed it. I'm not an expert on the US constitution, but to me it's kind of weird that that politicians have the ability to lock down cities or states like that. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm not a legal expert either, but um, I, th- I think, I mean, I do have some interest in civil liberties. I think generally speaking, there's the executive, uh, whether you're talking about it, the national, the state or the city level usually has some kind of emergency powers that they can enact. Mm-hmm um you know lockdowns or things to protect the public health uh so i think that's where that came from and 
but in fact, a lot of those lockdowns and and executive orders, as they would call them, have been challenged in court and are 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 and and they've usually been struck down by the courts because um, you, they can't they they're they're really supposed to be for a limited amount of time when you need a you know an executive who can just get things done quickly. But if if there's going to be a law that's going to persist, then it then it's supposed to go through the legislature. So, um, mm -hmm. in fact, a lot of those things have been, and that that actually happened where I'm at in New York. They they struck down the governor's mandate about masks as unconstitutional. Um, okay. Yeah. Because yeah, we have this debate now in Sweden, like after the pandemic. Because everyone found out that there were no emergency powers in the constitution, and it has to be like a war for those to to be valid. So there's this debate about whether or not we should have those, and but I think this pandemic shows that it's pretty good to not have them. Uh, <laughs> well, there's definitely a thing that you know, having studied that a little bit in the U.S. with the president that once you grant an executive powers, they're very unwilling to give them up. Um, yeah. Even their even their successor is unwilling to give up those those powers because, um, of course, they think, well, I'm going to do something great with them. You know, that's 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 the old story of, you know, increasing. So so in the US, like the president has become increasingly powerful. There was always supposed to be a checks and balances against that. But um yeah. so i think that's smart i mean i think that's right um and i don't know if that's uh you know we have mm -hmm. i think it's very difficult for politicians and authorities to to, to uh, create like the best public health scenario in situations like this too because what you saw in a lot of u.s states actually and in england was that people started uh, like locking down or like hunkering down even before uh, they were forced to. So right. uh, it just shows that people are pretty rational when it comes to their public health and that it might be better to just um, to let people have that power for themselves. Because if you just make the thought experiment that you have like a virus that has like a 10% mortality, I mean, you probably don't need a law to keep people at home. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And that was true, at least for me personally. I mean, even before school shut down, I had kept my son back from school because I would just, I just, I didn't, I was being, you know, I was having the phrase we heard a lot was abundance of caution. I was like, I don't know what's going on, but, but I think at some point, you know, everyone was looking at Italy and going, wow, this is, this is terrible, you know, what's happening. There's really high case fatality rate. And, um, but, yeah. you know, people that I say follow on Twitter, you know, smart people, one of them, uh, his name is Mark Cengizi. He's actually been on this podcast. Uh, he's a, uh, he's works in like neuroscience, but he's, you know, smart guy background in physics. And he was saying early on, you know, oh, this is overblown. And really through the whole pandemic, he's saying this is overblown. This is calling it social contagion and stuff like that. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't know what to make of that. But over time, you know, he's been proven correct. So, you know, is it is it that he knew all along? Or, you know, it, 
or is it just there was a 50 for 50 chance that he was right and he happened to you know that just sort of bear it out over time that's that's what i kind of wonder about i wonder about with the these swedish epidemiologists it's just like well they they took a stance which was brave but what if they were what if they'd been wrong you know um, they were a little bit wrong to be honest because they, they definitely yeah. underestimated the risks but only by a factor of like two <laughs> whereas uh <laughs> the rest of the world probably overestimated by a factor of 10 something like that so yeah. uh according to these predictions so um they were like closer to the truth but you're right it could have been could have if if it had gone like the other way they would have uh, but i guess them might book would have been like even more interesting <laughs> yes it would have been a story of failure um and that would have been the story of the century in sweden like it, like how how they just like didn't do anything when like hundred thousand people died <laughs> yeah and that's a lot because we're only 10 million people here I, and i know that these numbers like six thousand here it, it sounds very little but there are only 10 million of us so you have to like scale it up by a factor of 30. yeah, for US. yeah. well that's that's one thing i i i mean that's kind of my takeaway from this pandemic it just seems like there's so much variability in where you live how old you are you know uh, maybe your, your ethnicity, like all of these risk factors, you know, and everyone has to evaluate their own risk and we're all terrible at it. You know, like, like we know this, we know people are terrible at estimating their own risk. Um, everybody thinks it's more dangerous to fly in airplanes, for example, than to, than to drive when it's the, exactly the opposite. Right. Yeah. And the media has been really bad, uh, when it comes to explaining the risks involved here because yeah when you ask uh, americans and british people like wh what their own risk is it's like way overblown and they like especially young people overestimate their risk by a lot mm -hmm. um they underestimate the risk of old people because it is really dangerous for old people yes but, right but and those to, with uh, like pre pre-existing conditions too that are you know yeah um, already and, frail. But there was this study being made uh, during the first year of the pandemic uh, when about they asked uh, people in Europe and in the US about how, how many people that they thought had died. And in Britain, a third of the people thought that this, as many people as lived in Wales had died. So, uh, which I is like how many US, people, how many people uh, is that? I think it's like five or six million or something like that. Yeah. Okay. And so in most, in most countries, they had overestimated the deaths hundredfold or more. So yeah. that just, that just shows you what a, what a weird perspective people have yeah. on the pandemic. Hey, I just wanted to take a quick pause to thank another one of our sponsors, HostGator. HostGator is one of the world's top 10 largest web hosting companies with over 8 million hosted domains. They have around-the-clock support, and all shared web hosting plans include a 45-day money-back guarantee. I've personally used HostGator since 2008 for all of my hosting needs and couldn't be happier. Sign up today using the promo code SCIENCECENTRIC 
and you'll receive 25% off any new hosting plan. So what one thing that was really interesting about your book is like, okay, we, we have this peek inside the, the worlds of, you know, state epidemiologists and, and their adjacent yeah. uh, peers, but also it's, it's, a, it's really kind of a look inside of epidemiology as a whole. And it seems like there, you know, there's only a, maybe a couple handfuls of these people that are really making these, make, not making policy, but, but, but putting out papers and things that inform the policy. So yeah, early it's, it's on, more... yeah. So it seemed like all these people kind of know each other. So what, like, what is, you know, what is the connection with Sweden in terms of like the rest of the, the world's epi epidemiology or public health community? I mean, they're, they're, they're fairly prominent compared to than, than what you might think for a country of 10 million people. Yeah. It's, that was also a coincidence because the guy who hired Anders Tegnell, his name is Johan Giesecke, and he had been like somewhat of a big guy in this field. And he, he made, he sort of was the one that made the uh, European CDC uh, be stationed in, in Stockholm. So all these like, scientists were based in Stockholm. And he was the, the first head scientist of, uh, of the European CDC. So he had like a lot of power in that world. And he knew like all these people in England who made these predictions. And I mean, he's pretty blunt about what he thinks about them. I mean, he thinks they're like hacks pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> so that was also kind of lucky that just these few people had that insight into this uh, college that made this uh, kind of terrible report, one has to say. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I mean, people get it wrong all the time, but to be that wrong and to be that influential is a really uh, bad combination. Yeah. And and to to bring it back to the media as well, of course, you know, like, let's say you put out a prediction about, you know, you put out a model and you say, well, these this is the range of values. Let's say it's 100, you know, 100,000 or 400,000 can die. Of course, they're going to latch on to 400,000, that number or whatever, you know? Yeah. So I think the media has a lot of responsibility or culpability, I should say, in this as well. And that just always latching on to that most like dramatic, you know, number, um, when in fact, I don't know, yeah. I didn't, I didn't actually look at, I never looked at that paper, but, uh, that we're referring to Neil Ferguson at Imperial college yeah. London and, and early on yeah, in the I, epidemic, I he, he yeah. made these predictions about how many people would die and was completely proven wrong. So. So I, I, I guess at the, you know, having studied this for a while, what, like, how bad was it really? I mean, how, how many people did we actually, how many people died as a result, results of COVID? Um, I mean, it was, it, it was very bad. It was, uh, it was probably the worst pandemic in a hundred years. And, and I've seen like some people say that it was uh, on par with the Spanish Spanish flu, but that that's completely not correct. Uh, yeah, the Spanish flu was many many times worse. So that's also one of these things that are that is difficult to talk about when it comes to risks. I mean, 
even though it's the worst thing in 100 years, you the, most people probably have been at higher risk of, any, of some other things in their lives. And I know that there was a study in Stanford that tried to compare it to driving a car X miles. And I mean, I think that's a really good way of framing it to people. Mm. And of course, if you're old, it might be as driving a car, you know, just a thousand miles. But, uh, but for young people, you have to drive a whole lot. To, uh, yeah. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I haven't seen that comparison. That's kind of an interesting I think one. It's, uh, John Ioannidis. Uh, ah, at Stanford, yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, yeah. And he was a vocal kind of critic of some of the earlier uh, estimates, I believe. Yeah. About, about prevalence and like infection fatality rate, case fatality rate. He said it was way, too, it was being way, it was way too high. Yeah. Um, and that's all, all, like, he, he was one of the reasons why I was also interested in this like, contrarian take, because uh, I, I kind of knew of him before. Cause a lot of doctor friends of mine, like some statistician friends of mine, they had talked about him for a while. And so, so he, he was kind of a known quantity. And, it's, it's kind of interesting to see all these like pretty prominent scientists that have like other views and suddenly you don't see them very much in the media. So if you, if you have like a prior understanding of some scientific things, then, then it's like easier to have your own opinion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so one thing I just thought of is, you know, if, if vaccines hadn't come along in you know, in Sweden and actually in the US too, in, in spring of 2021. What do you think would have happened in Sweden in terms of the policies and such? Would, would this experiment have continued or was it already kind of coming to an end in terms of shutting things down, shutting down schools, mat wearing masks, those sorts of things? I mean, I think it would have continued because I mean, it, it is a little bit what happened. I, I took part in this seminar uh, with uh, some like epidemiologists the other the other week, and then one of the people in charge, who's she's not in my book because she has been just like taken over, uh, and she she said that it wasn't so much the vaccines but the Omicron wave that really killed the pandemic. So mm -hmm. something like that would have happened, and mm -hmm. the pandemic would have been over, I guess. Yeah, but I thought it was an interesting insight because I've never really heard anyone say that before. But uh, it was actually a little bit the natural immunity that right. So, so she's saying, and who? What's her name? Do you know? Do you remember? Uh, currently, Mark Visel. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the idea would be that because Omicron is more contagious, but but less uh has like um uh, is less severe that people would have gained immunity anyways over time yeah and also that without it, a big uh, death death toll yeah and then also that the people got it even though they had been vaccinated right right so um like actually the window where the vaccine was like really powerful was pretty short in school or mm -hmm. yeah, a year or so. um but, but also, 
I, I think I would have thought that the vaccine would be more powerful because the early studies indicated that it was like super efficient. Mm-hmm. Whereas mm-hmm. Well, a normal flu vaccine, maybe. So it definitely right. played a huge part. But to answer your question, I think that is what would have happened. That there would have been like uh, a wave and then another wave and then another wave. And I guess the rest of the world would have stopped locking down. Cause, I don't know, would, would they have continued for like five or six years? It's pretty unlikely, I think. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe, at some point. China is still doing it, so. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think they've had some recent lockdowns where they just like shut down yeah. the whole city. Yeah. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about is, are we any, did, have we actually like learned anything from these past couple of years? You know, if, if another pandemic came along, which it probably will from everything I understand about, you know, origins of, of these viruses. Um, I mean, do you think that we will be any better prepared? Do we actually learn anything about what we should do and not do? Because I think when I talk to people in the U.S., they tend to think that the the measures that we took were effective and, and did something to kind of prevent deaths. And I, I at this point, I'm not I'm not clear about that at all. I, I think it's questionable. I think uh, you're totally right. That is very questionable that they had any effect. And I think everyone will understand that eventually. Because mm-hmm. I think it, we have to dial down the conflict a little bit and then then there will be like a new wave of journalists because there, there are many journalists who haven't touched the subject and those are the people that have to write like the American book about this and like and, and go through what really happened and I, th- I think my book is like a start that you, it's kind of weird how Sweden was portrayed as this reckless nation and there are like all these um, stories about how many people that actually died in Sweden and now, now after two years we actually have fewer deaths and that's like that's a very good control group I think if you want to start digging deeper into what actually happened here yeah. and, and I think this is a, a tale about a group thing more than like anything I've ever seen in my life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that that you highlighted in the book and, and that I've definitely noticed is that, and, and a reason that I haven't really, I mean, I could have done a bunch of podcast episodes on COVID and I just kind of avoided it was, it just became so politicized in the United States about, you know, should you, what you should do or not do. And it really became conservatives against uh, liberals in terms of, you know, interventions and things like that so um but i think, I, I think I, my concern my concern is just that if there was another pandemic we just it would end up we'd just be back on the lines of you know the political divide in terms of oh do this don't do that so i just hope that you know maybe we can learn something from sweden in terms of how to take a more rational scientific approach to to it but I don't know about, I think, I, I, I think Sweden maybe is better that way than the U S I think the U S is a little bit, it's just 
I don't know. It's just more polarized, I think. I don't know. I, I don't know politi- Sweden's political system very well or parties or anything like that. But I mean, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful about the U.S. It always turns out pretty well in the end, I think. And I think here <laughs> it's going to be the same thing that... Like, when you think about other really politicized issues, uh, like, say, like the Iraq war, uh, at least here in Sweden, I think in the U.S. too, like, people can admit that they were wrong about this and wrong about that. And we've had other things in Sweden, like whether to not whether or not to uh, to join the Euro, and people have been pretty open about that. Yeah, I was wrong about that, even though it was very, very harsh at the time. And I think that will happen too with COVID, that people will just uh, be a little bit more chill about uh, reading the data and... Uh, admitting that they were wrong. I mean, you, you seem to have made that journey yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you were like very pro lockdown. So it only took you a year. <laughs> Sorry for the interruption. I swear, I swear, this is the last one. I just wanted to tell you about the reading room that we have set up over at sciencecentric.com. It's a page dedicated to cool science and nature books many of them written by authors who have appeared on this show. Any book you purchase through the links on the page directly supports the podcast and the other amazing projects we have in the works. The nice thing is there's no additional cost to you. So if you'd like to see a nice collection of science books uh, that you can purchase, head over to sciencecentric.com and check out our reading room. I definitely is the kind of person that would always, I mean, I've always had a huge amount of respect for, for example, for the CDC. And, you know, I always thought that I always thought of them as sort of an apolitical neutral, you know, entity with very high standards for evidence and things like that. Um, but I just, I think I'm more of the, the, I've come around to this idea that they're, that at least with this pandemic, it's been more of a political, political decisions are being made more by political, uh, considerations than scientific ones. Um, yeah. But and I think it's always like that in science, but, uh, cause they are just like any kind of jobs. They have like office politics and people you want to be friends with and people you want to avoid. And like, I mean, they're they're not insulated from that kind of human behavior. Yeah, I I do think that the CDC currently has it right in that they issue these guidelines that are on a by like per county level in the U.S. So they say like if look if you're they have different levels of intervention they recommend for how many cases are uh, in your you know the case uh, what would you call that. Um, the prevalence of new cases or something like that, they're, uh, you know, they, you know, for example, if it's very low number of new cases, then they, they're not recommending masks. If it's very high, then they'd say like, yes, let's do masks because we know that they're not super effective, but, but we'll, we'll take any, we'll do any intervention to keep people out of hospitals at this point, because, you know, um, there's a, how sure can you be that those numbers are accurate? Isn't like very based on how many people that actually go test themselves? And can you really be sure that it's much worse in one county than another? 
Because um, well, people have like suggested these things in Sweden, too, but they, they never never happen. So that's why I wonder. But, I mean, that's a great question. Yeah, I don't know. I would have to look and see how they're determining that. Um, so you're bringing up the point that it could be, you know, there could be some self-selection going on where people yeah. or selection bias where people are going, you know, they're counting cases of people that are going that are sick. So I hope that they're doing some kind of randomized testing. Um, you know, they're just picking a random sample yeah. of people and determining it that way. Um, but I don't know. I don't know for sure. Um, what I do think is right is the that they're looking at it by area on a pretty pretty granular level and not just making these blanket rep recommendations for like a whole state. Um, yeah. So that's that's a bit better. But um, and then they've they've pretty much ditched the mass requirement. Uh, but as we mentioned. Uh, as we talked about before we started recording um, in New York uh, City only, not even New York State, they still have this mask requirement for two to four year olds, um, which makes no sense because they've been the been the sort of least the group at least risk for any kind of severe COVID complications. So it's very bizarre. Yeah. Um, it is very disheartening to see those images from the US. With, yeah. Um, kids in uh, classrooms wearing uh, masks. Um, I really hope that uh, they reevaluate re those things pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, but I think that's another, that's another situation where you go, you know, you come around to this idea that this, uh, a lot of this is driven by politics and politicians wanting to look like they're doing something. And when you look at the actual science, you just go, this doesn't make sense. This intervention yeah. doesn't make any sense. So why do we still have it? Um, and, and now, you know, bringing it back to your book, we're talking about following the herd or not. The herd is actually ditching masks at this point. And so our mayor in New York City, Eric Adams, is not following the herd and doing it, yeah. doing something that no one else is doing. So I don't know, maybe he'll be proven right at some point, but um, I don't think so. Well, I don't think the science is there. Why is New York taking such a, like its own path here? Okay. I think, I think part of it, um, and I've talked about this uh, a bit with my wife, but you know, we were one of the areas in the US that was hit pretty hard initially and new york is very unusual in the united states in terms of density population density and we have a lot of people here who are you know have a lot of health issues uh that are kind of living in marginalized communities so we we got hit pretty hard and so i think that's made people very um cautious about you know yeah. removing restrictions but you know that mask mandate for two to four year olds i'm talking about came about in December of 2021. I mean, this was not March of 2020. It was like the end of 2021. So it's very, that that's, it's the whole thing's very bizarre. Um, yeah, anyways, I could, yeah. I could go on about that for an hour, but um, that's a good place to wrap up. And so uh, Johan, is there, where, where's the best place for people to find you? 
uh, online. And um, yeah, let's start with that. Uh, my Twitter is at Johan Underberg. That's one word. Um, okay. Yeah. That's okay, the great. Way. Great. We'll, we'll add a link to that uh, so people can, can find you. And then when is the, the herd book coming out in the US? Or is it out already? Um, I was a little confused about uh, that. In, in two weeks um, throughout the US. And, but I think, I'm pretty sure you can, you can read it on Kindle already because it's out in yeah. like Australia and the UK. So you can, uh, if you have that, you can read it. And probably other, other similar services that I don't know about. Yeah, I looked on Amazon and I was like, oh, you can buy this today if you want. So um, yeah. yeah, if people are interested, um, anybody who's interested in epidemiology that wants, you know, like I said, an in, inside peek into this uh, world of epidemiology during this global pandemic, it's it's a really great read and um, really learned a lot. So, so thanks for writing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, um, I think we'll yeah. end there. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this show. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Email us at feedback at sciencecentric.com. Also, don't forget to rate this show and leave a review wherever you happen to download your podcasts. You can directly support future episodes by joining our Patreon page for as little as a dollar per month. We have a couple of nice benefits available, including early access to new episodes and a monthly live Q&A with yours truly. Head over to sciencecentric.com slash support for more info. Sciencecentric is a FlowSpark Media production. Our audio engineer for this episode was Dayan Jedjik. Guest booking was handled by Melissa David. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Eric Olson.